Welcome to the Resourceful HDR podcast. I'm Sally Purcell, and in this podcast, I explore high degree research, HDR, career and employment experiences, how individuals have made career decisions, navigated transitions, and helped others to build a career. In Australia, HDR usually includes Master of Research, PhDs, and professional doctorates. I hope you enjoy this podcast. My guest today on the Resourceful HDR podcast is Dr. Jacqueline McAway. Jacqueline is a lecturer in the Department of Sociology at Macquarie University. For the past four years, she has taught a social research unit which requires students to undertake an internship. Previously, she's worked with Macquarie's Professional and Community Engagement, PACE, initiative, providing scholarly underpinning for pedagogy in this area. Jacqueline's research interests cover the sociology of education and work, and she recently completed a PhD focused on equitable student access to work integrated learning. Prior to her time in higher education, Jacqueline spent 15 years working as a human resource professional across a range of sectors, including government, not-for-profit, and large multinationals. Thanks for joining me, Jacqueline. Thank you for having me, Sally. So when I first started in this position in mid-2015, my colleague, Dr. Juliet Lum, suggested that I speak with you because you were the HDR representative on Macquarie University's HDR committee, now the Research and Research Training Committee. I asked to meet over coffee, and I remember we spoke for some time because we're pretty good at that. <laughs> and you provide me with some great insights and ideas to help me to figure out where to start. One thing we discovered in common is that we both had accidentally ended up working in the area of human resources with qualifications in arts. So you've had a very interesting career thus far. Let's start back at the time that you had completed your HSC. You had your sights set on going to university and despite an interest in history, you entered a Bachelor of Finance. Could you talk about how you chose that degree? Yes, I really wanted to go to university and in a strange way it was expected. I was a good student in high school, actually probably a bit of a nerd, and I think my family and friends just kind of expected that that's what I would do. But how I got there, that is university, and how I have now returned there was quite the journey, not so straightforward uh, and definitely uh, not linear. And in fact, the B Finance or the Bachelor of Finance uh, sort of chose me. Uh, I didn't choose it. It was really on the advice of a careers advisor in high school where we had a bit of a chat and she had encouraged me to apply for a cadetship with Grace Brothers, which is now Maya. And they offered employment and they also offered to cover the full costs of your university studies. So I was the first year that HEX, I think I was the first mm. year of HEX. And so that was quite a big thing, the fact that now university was going to cost mm. money. And the cadetship offered a way of addressing that because I wasn't in a position really to cover the costs and nor was my family. So it seemed like a good solution. And the Bachelor of Finance was in fact the degree that the organisation had chosen. So that's how I kind of ended up doing a Bachelor of Finance. But I should say the other thing that appealed to me about doing the cadetship was that I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And doing the cadetship, offered employment. So for me, it offered some insights into maybe possibilities, different types of careers or jobs, and a bit more life experience and world experience. So I kind of saw it as a 
good option for me. Mm. Yep. Makes sense because, yeah, you're young and really common not to know what you want to do. I get to go to university, mm-hmm. I get paid, I'll get some work and life experience and then I'll find my way, yeah, yeah. which is actually a very good attitude. It's just that it sounds like as we you discovered mm-hmm. later that mm-hmm. the Bachelor mm-hmm. of Finance wasn't really the right choice. And I'd just like to say that careers advisors at school have come a long way and now they oh. look much more at the person. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I, sh- I should also fess up that um, like I-, I would like to think I'm not competitive, but I kind of am a bit. And the cadetship was really competitive. And I'd always had this thing, you know, my mum and I had this running thing where she would never say that she was proud of me. And it you know, it didn't matter sort of what I did. She just had this philosophy of not, she'd say she was pleased. Oh, that's, that's great, Jacqueline, you've done that. You know, that's terrific, well done. But never would she say she was proud. So I thought, right, you know, it's almost like a challenge. Mm. If I get this cadetship that's really competitive, you know, she'll, she's going to have to say it, surely. It's a good lesson for me because I think when we were talking <laughs> about that pre-podcast, I said that I also did that because... You know, like your mother, I'd probably read or heard about that, you know, idea of saying you're proud is some sort of conditional love. Mm. And so mm-hmm. therefore you don't do that because you're proud mm-hmm. of them no matter what and all those sorts of mm-hmm. things. And and so having had that conversation with you earlier, I now think, right, I might have to change that. So that's really funny. Look, not necessarily. I think I think the idea that, you know, this idea that love is conditional. No, I, I actually think there is... Merit. Uh, yes. Yeah. So it's just, anyway, one of my weird childhood <laughs> hang-ups. And also that competitive thing too. Oh, is oh like, right, totally. I'm going to win this one. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, I, and I ended up getting the cadetship. So, yeah. And she still didn't say. No. <laughs> which we'll get to later. So how did you feel making the choice to leave the Bachelor of Finance, which you did, particularly because you had envisaged graduating with a university qualification. This was sort of your identity. You'd been a nerd. You still are one, I have to tell you, Mm. Um, Mm. which is fine (laughs) where you are now. And so, you know, the fact that you were then giving up that ideal, how did that feel for you? It was quite mixed, actually. Giving up the Bachelor of Finance was a relief. It just wasn't a good Mm. fit. And failing stats sort of sealed the deal for me. The first time I'd failed anything, but it was also a bit of a wake up. This isn't a good fit and I need to get out. Part of the problem was though that I had to give up the cadetship as well. So a whole lot of stuff went in one go uh, and I had to rethink what I was going to do. And my parents actually were really supportive and said, that's fine. Sometimes things don't work out, but you're not lying around on the sofa at home doing nothing. And my mum often says this thing about don't waste time. Why are you lying around wasting time? You could be doing something. So, you know, I had to go out and get a job, which I did. And I ended up doing this really kind of interesting job. It was super fun. It was customer service and sales and a bit of marketing. And it was working on an incentive program for IBM sales executives. And I had to find prizes and help organise those prizes and the program and manage the program. And so while it was fun, I did also figure out maybe not for me. I learnt lots about myself, just life skills, you know, how to get myself around Sydney, how to manage a budget, pay bills, all those sorts of things, but lots and lots of practical we would describe them, Sally and I, as XHR people, we would describe them as sort of generic 
skills. I think once we called them soft skills, now we're calling them maybe entrepreneurial mm. skills, but lots of things about problem solving and working with others and managing your time, managing yourself. So lots of, lots of good things that came out of it. The biggest lesson I think I learned was I don't want to do this kind of work mm. forever. And I've still got this hankering to go to university and yes, go to university and be a university student, but I just didn't know what to study. Yeah, and we do still have this issue, probably more so, I think. If you're not doing something with a clear vocational mm. endpoint, then why are you doing it? Which is such a tragedy because we need big picture thinkers and shades of grey and as the world becomes more complex, mm -hmm. we need creativity mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. problem solving that comes from something that is not clear and in humanities you definitely get that. Mm. So it is a great pity because that was mm. probably playing on your mind as well mm -hmm. and particularly with your mother saying you've got to do something. Mm -hmm. So what would you do with an arts degree? So That's why right. would you do that? That's right. So then you did choose... <laughs> After saying all that, you didn't choose to return to university and enrol in a Bachelor of Arts. So how did that come about then? I did. So I have an older brother who's very wise and he just said to me, you know what, you should just enrol in an arts degree. He was also enrolled in an arts degree, I should say, part-time. And he just said to me, do subjects you really love, that you're interested in. And it was wise and his wise because he sort of gave me permission to learn and, and that learning for learning's sake is totally legitimate. It didn't have to be attached to some profession or career plan. It was go and ex do things you're interested in that you love. So that's what I did. I enrolled in a Bachelor of Arts and I just I had the best time ever. It was like a smorgasbord of subjects. You know, my degree in the end, I had loads of history subjects, modern and ancient. I had done anthropology, politics, law. It was just, you know, a little, a little bit nutty. Um, but I, I was having fun. I was learning, learning lots and learning lots about myself as well. But always play, you know, nagging away is that idea of, well, what am I going to do with this? Sort of watch what are the career options? And I was working full-time at the same time, still doing sort of sales and administrative, um, customer service, those sorts of roles. So I was still in my mind going, yeah, that's not a good fit, but trying to figure out what was a good fit. And often what happens, I think, with people in BAs is that they go and add a dip head, you know, back in the olden days. Mm -hmm. That's what you did. That's what you did. I you, did one of those. You did a dip head because I kind of went, well, that's something I, it was recognisable. You know, that's a profession or a career that's recognisable for a humanities person to do. And I was pragmatic as well. Like, I need a job. I need to, you know, but I want to be in the arts and humanities space. So what would be a good fit? I had ruled out some things along the way. I had the great fortune of going on a dig uh, to Jordan with Sydney University and had a chance to figure out whether or not, you know, being an archaeologist or an anthropologist, was that going to be something that I would pursue? I discovered it's quite a nomadic life, these people live. They go in and out of country, um, working in seasons on digs. At the time, I was a bit of a homebody, and I went, I can't imagine being a nomad. And I'd also imagined having a life where I would 
maybe have a partner and children and how would that fit into the nomadic life? So I was thinking about those things. And then I enrolled, I got special permission to enroll in some postgrad classes because then I thought, oh, maybe I could explore academia and, and do a PhD. But that was even a bit misguided because I don't think I actually really wanted to be an academic even you know back then. I think it was kind of a bit of um, avoidance yeah. strategy. It was, I, I'm not going to leave the institution saying, oh, I've graduated and now I'm going to be X or Y. I was potentially going to graduate and still be saying, I don't know what I'm doing. And this idea of, you know, failing was sitting there just a little voice in the back of my head and I was thinking, oh. so I so I did do the, the deep head. Looking back on the Bachelor of Arts though, mm. knowing mm. what you know mm. now, mm. and let's hope some Bachelor of Arts people might hear this at some stage, what would you say that you really now know that mm. you gained through that Bachelor mm. of Arts? Mm. Look, a, a lot of skills, and I sometimes wonder whether or not, you know, you're predisposed, maybe that's why you're attracted to a particular degree program in the first place, maybe. Uh, so it's that combination of predisposition, but also then you do learn things along the way, skills and capacities and knowledge. And things that have just stuck with me is this this curious mind, curiosity, always asking questions. I know, you know, as a sort of a history major, I was always thinking about, you know, primary sources and secondary sources and who'd written it and why had they written it. And so that questioning mind has always stayed, whether it didn't matter what sort of jobs I've been in, I've always asking questions and sort of critiquing, well, what's the underlying agenda here? Um, who, who's the author of this? As a historian, you're often wondering, you know, well, who's the author of this? And what's what, their agenda? What's their agenda? What are the motives? Um, but also thinking about different perspectives, mm. that there's, there's not just one view. History, though, will sometimes present just one view, mm. but we know that's not the case. So that also has sort of stuck with me as well about seeking other um, versions of, of something. <laughs> and it strikes me though that you're always asking questions. The difference is you might have asked questions in finance but there's often a clear answer. I'd say that you like to ask the questions and then find more questions to ask. Oh invariably that's <laughs> what happens. <laughs> invariably. I think the other thing I think about people who are in humanities and of course I'm biased here. I, I, I'll declare my hand here. Is that Often the things that we're thinking about and working with are a little bit messy and complex and they don't actually just sit in one disciplinary space. Now, I'm sure there'll be economists or, you know, actuaries or lots of other people who say the same. But I've always felt that about the arts is that, you know, you draw together lots of different knowledges to try and think about mm -hmm. and deal with quite messy and complex problems and as you rightly say often you know you start off with a couple of questions but they invariably lead to more and in asking more questions you also then realize how you don't what you don't still know uh, and that you can't actually answer the questions on your own and you do have to bring other people uh, into the tent 
to help you think through stuff. So that's definitely played out well in my professional life prior to higher ed. That idea of you know get, gathering people into the tent <laughs> yep. and going, okay, this is the issue we're dealing with. What else? What else is going on here? You know, I'm just seeing this is the issue. There could be more to this. And then unpacking, yes, the complexity of, our, of it and then figuring out, well, who knows something about this or where else do we have to get more information to start dealing with it? So, Yeah, and of course, humanities is human mm. equals mm. complexity. Mm. So when you're looking at a humanities issue, you obviously have to look at you know, a whole range of things that have to do with human beings, as certainly medicine and science and other areas do too. Uh, But it is that thing, I think, that if you are a little nerdy, as you just self-described, is that continuing to find more. It's not just, Mm. right, I've sorted that out. Mm. Mm. And that can continue forever, really. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) So having done the dip ed, you then did go out and do a bit of secondary school teaching. And then it took some time, but you realised that wasn't for you. Can you tell me what led you to that realisation? I loved the subject matter that I taught. I taught history and legal studies uh, and I loved the kids and I loved the whole classroom space. It's just I found the staff room space tricky. And what really challenged me was these preconceived ideas that teachers had about students and some of it sat around this also lack of aspiration for students and I really found that tough and I was young and still you know wet behind the ears and I hadn't been a teacher for a long time it's only reflecting back that you can understand how people do become sometimes jaded Mm. about their work Uh, so but at the time for me that's not where I was at I was excited and enthusiastic And I found that place really difficult. And I just knew that I was going to struggle to work somewhere where there didn't seem to be a humaneness Mm. to the work, that there didn't seem to be hope. And I saw education as hope for, for young people, for myself. And I really wanted to work somewhere where I was going to thrive and where the people, whether they were students or colleagues, were also going to thrive. So it was pretty confronting. And it was confronting also because it was like, oh, not again. (laughs) What do you mean this doesn't fit? What do you mean, like, this isn't working? And, you know, the F word came up again, fail. Is Is this another fail for me? And it was really, I was like, oh, I had to go, okay, well, what am I going to do about this? Why do I keep ending up in these sorts of positions where I'm making misguided decisions? You know, at the time, that's how I was feeling about it. When I decided to go, okay, you know, you need to do a bit of self-analysis here, Jacqueline. What's going on? And I started to ask myself about, well, why isn't it a good fit? You know, there was a little bit of criteria that I had been using to go, no, that's not right that is right. Where was I going to thrive? Who would I like to work with? Those were the sorts of things I went, oh, there is a sort of criteria I'm I'm using here. But the other thing I thought about was clearly I need to get some advice. I can't navigate this on my own. And so I intentionally sought out people who knew me 
who I knew had had professional lives that hadn't been a linear journey. And so I went, you know what, I'm going to go and have some conversations with those people and say to them, well, how did you land where you've landed? And is there advice? What can I learn from you that will help me then start to navigate how to start managing my own career decisions? Mm. So what did you do then? You talked about you needed yes, that. Yes, yes. So I had it. It was really interesting. So I did talk to lots of, not lots, a handful of people. But there was one really sort of critical conversation that I had with someone who was an executive recruiter just by chance. So she was probably used to having these sorts of conversations with people all the time. And what was fascinating was that she didn't want to ask me about what work I had done in the past. She didn't want to ask me about, or she didn't ask me about what sort of jobs I imagined for myself. She asked me things like, so Jacqueline, what are you good at? What do you like? What gets you out of bed? I remember that distinctly. What gets you out of bed? I was like, wow. She also asked me though, what aren't you good at? What do you still have to learn? And once we started answering those sorts of questions in our conversation, she said to me, you know, human resources might be a place for you to explore. You've got this background in education. You're interested about humane workplaces and the humanity of and and some social justice things as well. And you like working with people. And so she said, maybe you should think about something in that area and she said the other thing is there's lots of different types of work that people do in human resources so there might be that variety and also an opportunity to see different work and the other thing is once you're in HR as you know Sally you are exposed to lots of Mm -hmm. different types of work so it was kind of really smart in a way so I applied for a job that was with a small mid size company here in Sydney and it was as a training and development person in the HR team. It didn't take long until I moved into a generalist role with them but I loved it. You know sometimes HR gets a bit of a bad rap but I really enjoyed the variety of work, working with other people. Yeah it was it was a it was a good fit particularly at that time. Mm. So that's the other thing about some of these decisions. Sometimes it's a timing thing. So, you know, I said something about the staff room and being wet behind the ears and being at a different stage in my life journey. And I wasn't resilient enough to cope with a workplace where there was negativity. Hmm. And in fact, if you'd gone there after doing HR, you probably would have had capacity to transform the staff room. Possibly, but well, I know, but you know, ever the idealist. The thing is, you, you actually yes. could, you know, those people also came in bright eyed sure. and bushy tailed, and then, you know, they're working for a system that, that doesn't value them. Yes. They don't have the freedom to do the really interesting teaching that they know they can do. They wanted to teach mm. people, unless they just happened mm. into it, but so many of them mm. do see it as a vocation. I've mm. worked with those mm. um, teaching students, and I've heard the same story. Mm that they don't continue because of the staff room. Mm. and But the staff room is just happens over time to these people. And sadly, if they stay long enough, that mm. may happen too. And that's a system issue. Rather. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So it was just HR turned out to be uh, a good thing at that time for me. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Then you actually 
were working in that smaller company, but then you ended up working in a much larger company. Mm, mm. Can you tell me about that mm. experience? So I ended up in a large multinational and I was responsible for HR in the Asia Pacific region. So I had about eight countries. There was lots of mergers and acquisitions going on, a lot of opportunity to work in cross-cultural situations, to think about the culture of a workplace and how to accommodate for different people and different perspectives and managing change and all those things. But it was a big role and it was a, a tiring role. But it was funny because, again, I was sort of a bit competitive. So I was like, yes, step up, Jacqueline, step up. And, you know, my partner had said to me, why do you keep going for roles where you can already do the job? You need to go for stretch roles. So that role was a big, big stretch role. And, and, and he also said, though, that he felt it was because you're a woman that you were holding yourself back, as women often do, which kudos to him, mm. uh, that he recognised that you mm. had the greater capacity than you were giving yourself credit for. Yes, he, he did realise that there was a, a gendered thing going on here with how people approached what they, what they aimed for and aspired to. So, yes. Because what did he say about selection criteria? Oh, he, he said, you keep looking at the selection criteria and putting a tick next to things, and unless you've ticked everything, you don't apply. He said 60%. 60%, the rest of it. And I said, well, how am I going to manage this? And he said, like you always do, Jacqueline, he said, you'll sit above the water like a swan, gracefully moving across the top of the water, and underneath you're going to be paddling like a duck, <laughs> which is what I did. And, you know, I know there were people during that time in my career who would say to me, you're too young to be the director of HR for this area. So there was a bit of ageism going on. But part of me, I'd go, you know, I wonder if they'd say that if I was a guy. I did know that it was a stretch, but I was really going to give it a red hot go, as they say. And you did. And you did well. (laughs) But then, of course, Dave, your husband was offered a position in the USA and you had the option of staying with that company you were with. I did. Yeah. But you, when you relocated to the US, but what did you do instead and what led you to that decision? Yes. Well, look, I still had rungs on the ladder to climb in my HR career, but I was really tired. Doing this stretch thing, paddling like a duck was exhausting, Sally. <laughs> While looking like, you know, you mm. knew what you were doing all the time. It, it's pretty tiring. So I went, you know what, and, and is this what I want to keep doing? I think getting tired, you lose a little bit of the passion. Mm. And I went, okay, maybe what's going on here is for a good reason. And Dave said to me, use this as an opportunity to rethink your options, what else you might like to do. And so I went back to those basic questions What am I good at? What do I like doing? What do I still want to learn? What's going to make me thrive? And I decided that I was going to do some volunteering. So I got a volunteering role with a large art gallery in Art Gallery Museum, Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, because that's where I lived. And I enrolled in a Masters of Museum Studies. So here at Macquarie University, which was kind of ironic given that I was on the other side of the world. But the reason was 
that it was the only master's program that provided an opportunity to do an internship as part of your research project. And I really wanted to explore if this was going to be a good fit. I didn't want to be a curator. I was an administrator. Um, so it was going to be more a shift of industry, of sectors. So yes, that's what I did. And I did finally finish my master's degree uh, when I had my second daughter. So I started it with the first one <laughs> and finished it with the second one. But I, but I did finish it. And well done, because that is—it's very tough to do that. And also, you were in a different country, and so mm. on. Mm. So, when you returned from the USA, and you were now a mother, you were still studying for the masters, and you were then thinking, okay, well, what opportunities are there? You had a wealth of experience by that time, and so then you had to make some other decisions. What then led you to do the PhD from that point? Mm. Mm. So I did start up my own little business and did little bits and pieces of consulting work. It was lovely because in many ways I got to pick and choose, play to my strengths. I didn't have to fake it <laughs> or paddle, paddle like mad. <laughs> so that was great. And it also fitted with my carer responsibilities. And I finished up the master's. And at one point, my old master's supervisor rang me and said, we're working on this project, cross-cultural supervision in PhD candidature. Is that the right word? Yeah, candidature. Hard to say. So she said to me, we know that, or I know, because of my interaction with you over the years, that you've got some experience in that space. Would you like to be involved? So I got involved and basically I didn't leave Sally. I stayed. I stayed. So I worked on this little HDR project, which I loved. And it gave me a bit of a taste again. You know, it's this thing about sometimes for me, I think Mm. having a taster. So I had a little taster of what it would be like to be in higher ed. And then the professional and community engagement initiative was just kicking off. Judith Sachs was starting to get that up and rolling. And the Learning and Teaching Centre needed people who had some industry experience. So I got involved in lots of really fabulous stuff there. I just loved it. It was research, evidence-informed resources to help academics and industry design experience-based learning opportunities for students across a range of disciplinary areas. It was just fun. I I loved it. And I got to not only draw on my prior experience, which is great, but I was learning stuff as well. So it was this beautiful combination of, look, I've I've got this stuff in my kit bag that I can offer up. And at the same time, oh, I get to learn about reflection or about assessment or whatever it was that I was working on. Um, So it was great. But I used to drive my boss nuts because I was always saying, well, what about this? Why, why, Why do you keep calling them partnerships is is this model really a partnership and by the way why are some of these uh, opportunities only made available to that that particular cohort of students or why does industry only want those particular students and in the end she just said oh for goodness sake go and do a PhD and answer some of these questions that you you keep asking and that was a kind of strange thing because I was like why would me do a PhD what I I hadn't really thought that's what I would do um, necessarily and I certainly wasn't thinking oh I'm I want to be an academic but I was a curious cat and so I went okay 
oh, maybe I'll, I, I can do that. Um, and I thought, you know, you look back and you go, what was, what was I think? I can tell you in the throes of doing the PhD, I kept saying, being a curious cat is not a good enough reason to do a PhD. You really need a better reason. You really do. That, those obviously were the days where it was a, a real struggle because I'm still firmly believe that learning for learning's sake and finding answers to messy questions is worthwhile. But when you're juggling home and work and, you know, all the rest of it, yeah, it, there's times you go, maybe this, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. Maybe I could have done done this differently but I didn't I enrolled in the PhD and it's funny because I do talk about you know I didn't have this idea of being an academic and at the beginning I didn't I didn't say I'm doing this because I'm I want this and in many ways it was a little bit liberating I think for me it wasn't as high stakes at the very beginning I was kind of like yes this is interesting and fascinating and I want to explore this and it will be useful to this program it had to have some practical application that was absolutely the really the only caveat in a lot of ways it was like there's no point doing something that's sort of a bit of navel gazing it had to have practical benefit and application so once I'd determined that, yes, my research project was going to have that, um, I didn't have this hang up, though, or this sort of added pressure that some of my peers did about, oh, my gosh, if this doesn't work out, what will become of me? I'm not going to be an academic. I really want to be an academic or I'm doing this for a professional. I, I want to leverage off this and then do that out in industry. I didn't have that. I was kind of like, well, maybe I could be an academic. Maybe I could go back to industry. I, it, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a pressure that I had at the beginning. That did change towards the end because I did start to set some goals, but at the beginning, not so much. And possibly <laughs> though, that's also because you'd had those experiences. Yes. I now understand. Mm. I can sit with that uncertainty mm. and and go for the learning for the sake of learning with with the practical application. Mm. And I've got those mm. things covered, my curiosity, I know that's mm. going to be meaningful and I'll have some mm -hmm. application. So that's why mm -hmm. I'm doing this. And whatever else happens will happen because I've always mm. managed to find mm. my way mm. because you had. Well, that's that history thing too. I, you know, I could look back on my own history and go, oh yeah, look, sometimes it's messy and tricky and it's not linear. And so, yes, I had that level of comfort with the unknown. Yeah, I, and it's interesting because I remember having a conversation with my best mate who happened to be doing a PhD at the same time, which was just bizarre. And we were talking about she had an absolute plan. And I remember going, oh, maybe should I? And I said to her, you know what, for me at this minute, I don't want to regret not giving it a go. So for me at the beginning, that was really important. And I kind of knew that, look, there might be life circumstances that come up that mean I have to drop out. I then had realised it wouldn't be a fail. It would be about just other stuff and timing, this timing thing. Sometimes mm. it's not the right mm. time. But I, I did know that if I didn't give it a go, I, I possibly was going to regret not giving it a go. And... You know, once you start getting a bit older in life, you go, yeah, no regrets. That's it. What's the worst that could happen, Sally? I have to withdraw. That's the worst that could happen. That's a great philosophy. Great philosophy, I think. 
you talked about, you know, in the midst of it at times when you were thinking, mm. what have I done to myself? Mm. So can you tell me about your PhD project, because mm. that did evolve, and the problems that you might have encountered, or the issues, rather, mm. that you encountered mm. along mm. the way? So my PhD was all about uh, equitable student access to work integrated learning from an organisational perspective. So once again, drawing on my past life, and I wanted to know why organisations choose one group of students over another group of students. So it was very much from the perspective of organisations and a lot of organisational behaviour, um, some sociology. It was quite interdisciplinary and it was a qualitative study, which I love. So the data collection is just fabulous. You're out there interviewing and talking to, to people and the analysis, you know, thinking, well, what is it that they're really saying here? The hidden messages, you know, lots of organisations wanting to do image management, you know, not wanting to out themselves or their organisations as, you know, um, biased or, or discriminating against particular groups. So I just found it really, really interesting and fascinating. And ultimately, you know, um, I had to start writing up. <laughs> um, and I did decide to do it by publication because I had made this decision that if I did have to drop out along the way, at least I had been publishing and I'd fulfilled my obligation to my participants to get things out there, to get their story out there. So I took that responsibility very seriously and, and the PhD by publication was a good fit for my own values and the way, and also the way I work. So it gave me mini goals to aim for as I, as I was going along. But you know, some of the challenges, good grief. So my study started off, it was bigger than Ben-Hur. I went to an HDR boot camp with some academics from across the world and I had to give like a, an hour presentation on what my research question was. And at the end of it, the person running the session said, well, that's fascinating, Jacqueline. You've got three PhDs there. The challenge for you will be how to get one. And I left just devastated going, what am I going to do? And it took me 12 months to narrow it down. So that was a big hurdle. And the clock's ticking, of course. You're going, oh my gosh. And you've got other people that you're peers, that you're surrounded by, who are know what they're doing. <laughs> or seem like they are. Seem, and their question hasn't changed. And So getting a doable project was definitely a big hurdle for me. Um, I had some supervision um, changes because I had uh, supervisors change institutions and then they couldn't, so I then had to find new supervisors. I had, uh, you know, my principal supervisor stayed, me, stayed with me the whole time, but of course she had stuff happen in her life as well. So there were those challenges, but, you know, talk to anyone who's done a PhD and there's always challenges. Um, some of the other ones, I had a family member who became seriously unwell and then I had to go part-time. Uh, I took a break for a bit. Actually, I got great HDR advice and was told, why are you killing yourself? You've got these other responsibilities. You're not so far gone into your candidature that you can't actually take a break. And Jacqueline, by the way, this is a legitimate reason. <laughs> Care responsibilities is legitimate. So I went, okay, that's the other thing. You get swept up in this world of 
I don't know, it's just strange. All of a sudden you feel like you are beholden to these rules and sometimes these rules actually don't exist. Sometimes they do and they're unfairly exercised. But I was really fortunate. I had fabulous uh, advice and support from the HDR director and her team. And so I took a break, then came back part time. So there were lots of challenges. And of course, I have to mention imposter syndrome because that's a big one, I think, for PhD candidates and for early career academics as well. And in fact, my industry experience, <laughs> I know there's imposter syndrome there too. But I just kept chipping away and I knew I was going to finish and the people around me kept telling me, you're going to finish. And so I did. And it was wonderful it was kind of amazing you know you hit the submission button which is a little strange mm. I gotta say it was it was a little weird and I was just there on my own hitting submit going oh that's that's peculiar but it, but it was gone and then it's the waiting game so there is a little bit of angst that sits there because you're going well what's going to happen in the examination process am I going to have reject and I knew I wasn't because I had absolute confidence in my supervisors. So I, I knew it was a PhD, even though I had still some hang-ups. <laughs> I knew it was a PhD. They'd told me it was a PhD. And so I knew there'd be corrections. It was just how big. And then also going, have I got the energy? If they're big corrections, do I have the energy in, you know, gas in the tank? to do it. Uh, so fortunately it was minor corrections and I dealt with those and, and off it went and then graduation day rolled around and that's a kind of surreal feeling but a, a lovely feeling and I think for me it was lovely because I got to share it with people who'd really, you know, that's, that's the other thing I've learned in, in this is even though a PhD is a solo journey and quite a lonely journey and for someone like me who loves to work collaboratively, I love to work collaboratively. So the PhD journey was challenging, but it is a solo journey. However, you actually don't travel that road on your own. There's this support crew and I call it my village and all these different people who played all these different roles in helping me, everything from doing practical things like cooking dinner and minding my kids or getting them to events that I wasn't going to get to. And so the graduation is that lovely opportunity for them to also share in this quite big thing that you've pulled off. And, and haven't failed. Haven't failed. And your mother said. Oh, and my mother said at graduation day, I am so proud of you. So proud of you. And she, she must have said it half a dozen times. And I felt a bit naughty because I've always teased her about, about this. But secretly, I loved it. <laughs> I secretly loved it. <laughs> and I should say this, Sally. My mum, gosh, um, her nearest and dearest best friend is a silversmith. And she made me the most beautiful mm. cuff, silver cuff, and hammered into the inside of this silver cuff were these affirmations from my village. So my mum had proud stamped in it. My kids had put go girl, you know, and, and it was just for ages I wore that mm. around going, yeah, That's I, I did it. I well did done. it. So you've recently been successful in securing an ongoing position on a part-time basis after working for many years, many years on fixed term contracts. So what difference does it make to know you have greater job security, as we both know from our time in HR, absolute job security is actually a myth, 
How has that been for you to get that ongoing position? Oh, look, it's it's been great. You know, when you're on contract, you're always wondering about where the next job is coming. And you're always trying to keep your options open. And so I would be doing things like, you know, if I publish here, will it close a door or open a door? And so the angst that goes into that sort of decision, you are always taking on more work than you can do. I felt like 80% woman. I was only ever getting through 80% because I was just trying to do too much. You're spread too thin and you've got your energy scattered. And I found that deeply frustrating because I really wanted to consolidate now. I really did. I had this goal, you know, I want to consolidate what I've done. And I had this goal of I'd been teaching now for four years and I really enjoyed it and I loved researching. And for me, the idea was just going, going to be to have this academic role. And I decided I was going to try to get a secure role. I would give it three to five years. And if that didn't happen, I was going to go back out to industry. Um, But once I got this secure position, it's just been great. Now I can direct and channel this, this energy that I have. And I have this beautiful head of department, Ben, who said to me during our PDR discussion, our professional development sort of review, which, you know, sometimes I not always a great fan of these things and you know that you're jumping through some hoops but this was a really meaningful discussion and he said to me this is a chance Jacqueline in this review to hit the reset button and set some quite clear goals for yourself and I'm here to support you and he reminded me that I was an early career researcher and you know the imposter syndrome Yes, it's there. Try and park it to the side. I'm here to support. So it's so far so good, but a relief. And I and I do actually realise how lucky I am. There are many fabulous colleagues who I work with who are still on contracts. Yeah, so I really feel for for them. I I know what it's like. It's tough. It's tough. It is tough. I've done the even not in academic roles, but certainly, you know, lots of contract Mm, roles. And mm. I've chosen those at times Mm. because of not wanting to stay somewhere that didn't fit me. Uh, But, you know, I'd take that risk, which I'm glad I did. And, and, you know, really in hindsight, and even at the time, having worked my own experience in HR and career development, is knowing that I was building these additional Mm -hmm. skills and getting more experience Mm -hmm. that I could then shop around and I was putting them in my backpack, as you Mm. alluded to before, and that gave me greater uh, confidence. In, totally. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that's the thing is that you have to have confidence and be mm. as much as you can in the driver's seat because otherwise mm. you'll just be always trying mm. to jump mm. through those hoops. Mm. And, and it's not a great way mm. to live and work. Mm. I should say, though, you know, contracts, yes, sometimes absolutely they fit with, it's this timing thing, they fit with um, circumstances, whether or not it's in your personal life or your professional life. So if you've got a gap in an area, you go, I'm going to do some contract work to fill that gap or address that gap. So I'm not suggesting for a moment that contracting is is not a, not a good thing. I, it concerns me when it becomes the only thing. Yeah, yep. I agree with you there. As you said before, uh, when you're on these contracts, you're often trying to busily jump through hoops and publish certain things and in certain journals and and really second guessing yourself whereas once you have a position that is more ongoing 
then you can actually consolidate mm-hmm. and go, right, I can really focus. I can do some really mm-hmm. good things now. Mm-hmm. Whereas you don't have that same mm-hmm. confidence when you're in a, a short-term contract and you're mm-hmm. on continuing short-term contracts. Tied so much to professional identity, you know, that the precarity of work sometimes leaves us at sixes and sevens with professional identity. Who are we? Mm. Are we this today, are we that tomorrow? I think sometimes if you're in a permanent position, it allows you to go, okay, this is my professional identity. And it's this thing about focusing then that energy in, into a, a single direction, not necessarily, <laughs> but you can channel the energy instead of second guessing, being all things to all people which is a common complaint I hear amongst colleagues when they're contracting, that you're attempting to be all things to all people. And on the flip side, those people that do have ongoing positions that have had them for a while, really it would be great if they could regularly remind themselves of how lucky they are to have that. And if they're not feeling that way, maybe it's time to move into something else, which you've done. Uh, You've looked at yourself and gone, no, this isn't right. And if it is still right, then you know, start to recognise you have an opportunity here mm. to really make a difference. So mm. how could you do that? So there's there's pros and cons for Absolutely. both, Absolutely, yep. You're a recent PhD graduate. Yes. So it's all pretty fresh for you. Yes. So what advice would you give to current high degree research candidates or to those who are considering applying to do a Master of Research or a PhD? Oh, where to start, Sally? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, am I the right person to give advice on this? Uh, given that I didn't really start off with a whole lot of criteria, although, you know, we, we did touch on the fact that I did say it needed to have practical, real-world application. It needed to be useful. I think one of the big things I'd say is a high level of self-awareness. Really uh, know what gets you out of bed that's the, if you can answer that, does your research topic excite you and get you out of bed? Because you're going to be with it for a long time. So you really, and, and it's cliched, you hear people say it all the time, but it's true. And when you're really stuck and running out of puff, I know personally what kept me going was that I loved my topic. I also felt this obligation to, to finish uh, for my research participants. Think about things like, you know, what are you good at? Um, where are the gaps? Deal with those. If you haven't enrolled yet, there's some things to actually be thinking about. Am I really bad at managing my time and myself? Because, boy, you need to be good at that. It's quite practical, but um, it's a good thing to know. Also, what don't you know? So if your research starts heading in a particular direction, which sometimes it can when you're in humanities, you go, oh, should I be going this direction? I don't know anything about this. And I sure as eggs don't have time to do a whole other undergraduate degree. And doing a MOOCs isn't going to solve that problem. So also being aware of what you don't know and making sure that your research is well and truly anchored in an area that you have some level of knowledge. The other thing I'd say uh, that study and career paths aren't linear and I think my story sort of reflects that and that can be a bit scary uh, and it can be a bit scary when you're embarking on a PhD, particularly if you're thinking in only one direction. So the other advice would be to think about um, being open and being open to the different paths that a PhD or postgraduate study can take you. It doesn't necessarily end up or have to be in academia. 
there's lots of other places where knowledge and the sorts of skills and expertise that come with doing high degree research and study deliver that employers want. And that's becoming more evident when you, when you talk to employers like I do. It's not necessarily always the topic area. It's the skills and capacities that come from someone who has undertaken that high level of work and their capacity, it could be around writing, it could be around critical thinking, it could be around dealing with complex and messy problems. But those are the sorts of things that often excite, really excite lots of different industries and employers. So yeah, be open that you could go lots of different ways. But I will say this heightened level of self-awareness also allows you to realise, assess, judge what is an opportunity. Spending time thinking about, yes, what you're good at and where you want to go, what's what makes you tick, where you're going to thrive, where you could add value, what you've got to learn. Then when something does cross your path, you can go, oh, that's potentially a good opportunity for me, or that's a door I should knock on, or the reverse, which is sometimes a little trickier, but saying no is okay, and going, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass on that one. And sometimes it's scary when you're in a situation particularly close to the end of graduation, but sometimes it's okay to pass. And look, that's why when I'm running the workshops that I run, they're all about values, interests, skills, strengths, because it's not about job, um, mm. not about industry. That understanding of self first so that you can make that informed as much as you can sure. until you work in a role, <laughs> an informed decision based on who you are mm. and what matters to you. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Jacqueline. That's thank been you, so Sally. interesting. Thanks, <laughs> Sally. It's fun. It's always great having a, ch- having a chat. And I always think, you know, people have so much in common, really, where... There's more similarities than, than differences. But the what we can learn just from the stories and talking to one another. And sometimes it's reassuring to know that someone else has had a similar experience. Yeah, yeah. so it's fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You have just listened to an episode of the Resourceful HDR podcast about the career and employment experiences of high degree researchers. That is, Master of Research, PhD and Professional Doctorate candidates graduates and others in the HDR ecosystem. You can also find me on Twitter as Resourceful HDR and on LinkedIn, Sally Purcell at Macquarie University. Macquarie University students and staff can also access the HDR Professional Development iLearn site. Mm-hmm.